This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back well good evening welcome along this is the times roadbox podcast i am not matt chorley again sorry luke jones sitting in all this week whilst matt is away on holiday ahead we are talking Panto. It is back. We have had hugging grannies return. We have had eating out in restaurants return. We have had leaving the house for exercise return. But what about that other British human right? Panto returns, touch wood, this year. So we're going to hear from um, people who are responsible for basically most of the pantos in the UK. So we'll hear from them in a moment uh, how their preparations are going. But first, our fantastic columnists, David Aronovich and Danny Finkelstein. Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich, with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich, on Times Radio. How do you two feel about that? (laughs) Slightly ridiculous. There's also the use of Finkelstein halfway through it, but I will, I will, uh, will hurry over that. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be Frankenstein, isn't it? You can tell the whole thing. I mean, the, 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 it's in the mind of the incredibly talented person who produced that. There's a series of kind of almost unconscious associations going on, yeah. and that kind of and the Stein thing. It's pretty obvious what it's supposed to be. He's seen, you know, the kind of the old 1932 versions of Frankenstein with, you know, with the monster kind of going out there and the, maybe, maybe, maybe the RKO um, uh, trailers, etc. Mm. And that's what he's got in mind. And I've objected on many occasions to uh, to Matt about the fact that Janus is not really much of a compliment. Janus is the two-faced god. <laughs> and I've never understood. But I'm happy to be Cerberus, if that's what I am. That's that's yeah. my kind of all snarly. Oh, I see. What am but, I in that? <laughs> well, you can be Finkelstein. And then, and then uh, David, you're then, you can be Finkelstein's monster. Do it um, that way. Well, yeah. Well, actually, in a funny kind of way, that's true because Danny actually brought me to the Times in the first place. There you so, go. He pieced you together way, out of chunks of other columnists. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, let's move on to other matters. Um, what do you both make of uh, this whistleblower, which we're hearing quite a bit about this morning, uh, the evidence that he gave to the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, the written evidence, this um, guy who's 25, uh, working in, uh, in, in the Foreign Office during the Afghan evacuation. He lays 
out quite a bleak list of charges um, as to how it was handled. Um, Danny, what for you stuck out as being particularly worrisome? Well, I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing. I should say that to start off with. Secondly, it's obviously only one person's account, and one should always be cautious about that. Nevertheless, the bits that I have read are really very concerning. I suppose the most obvious one of those is the uh, story about the animals and penfolding, which I know he has uh, rebutted um, vociferously. He's not a person that I oppose. Um, uh, you know, whose judgment I propose a lot of faith in. But um, the uh, the truth is that story is pretty shocking because it and it, and we all sort of know that politics does work occasionally like that, uh, where um, the sort of colourful story pushes out the more strategically important things to do. Um, it's just very shocking when you read that that has happened in such a direct way. And it did look to my mind, it did look fairly convincing but, you know, it's very important to say you often learn more when you understand the perspective of more than one person. The way that I put it with these things is if when you read something, it looks incredible. How could someone possibly have done that? Usually the person who did it has some argument as to why they did it. Yeah. So to them, it didn't look so stupid. So you have to take both those into account. So I'd want to see that. I'd want to see what the rebuttal was. Uh, but that did look pretty shocking. But, but it's interesting, isn't it? That there is a divide in terms of the in terms of the accusations, uh, David. In the, the there's the politics and him criticising what he called slow decision making by the foreign secretary, then foreign secretary Dominic Raab. But then there's just things like how government physically works, i.e. the Foreign Office not providing enough passwords to the computers so the soldiers they brought in to help with the admin, eight of them had to share one computer because they couldn't log into enough of them. Yeah, um, I, I, like Danny, it takes some time to digest it all. And uh, again, like Danny, you have to make the caveats, which is it could be what one person sees at a particular time and maybe they don't see the bigger picture and so on. Mm. The other thing to say is the animals trade-off we knew pretty quickly after it had happened. So that's not actually news. Uh, and it is a kind of... Uh, but it is an indicator of the of how politics and an emergency situation can mix badly. Um, I thought that his uh, descriptions, but on the other hand, he comes to something fairly fresh and he comes to it without excuses uh, and so on, which allows him kind of to, to, make, to, to make perceptions which are, if you like, what an outsider would see. And that's quite valuable in itself because the outsider doesn't normally get a chance to see. Mm. Um, one of the things he describes in terms of the way in which Dominic Raab appears to have worked is the kind of classic example of, if you like, the, the, the not absolutely competent control freak. And we've all met these people and so on, with the people who simultaneously demand to be informed about absolutely everything and across absolutely everything, but not actually that good at making decisions. So what happens is that the whole business slows up and then when actually a decision gets made, it's not always the right one. The, the bigger and background picture though, I think is, is this. It was said, I mean, because some of us said it right the way back in April, that the combination of two presidents' policies towards Afghanistan were quite likely going to lead to a situation of disaster in Afghanistan, and that would mean masses of people trying to get out. And we really don't... So there should have been something that kicked in at the moment when that began to happen, even if it was happening earlier than people had anticipated it, because we knew it was one of the big possibilities. And I can't discern in all this the outline of how that of how that plan, if you like, was war-gamed before mm. this actual situation arose. You, you can't see it. 
Can you, no, Danny? No, I think that's that's correct. Um, you know, because one the the danger uh, with very vivid, you know. Uh, witness statements from the sort of scene is that you miss what David calls the strategic picture, you know, which is uh, how this happened in the first place, how we ended up having to rush this in the first place. Um, and those all need to be taken into account as well. I don't think, by the way, they'll be sculptatory. They'll add to the problem. Um, and uh, the, 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 so I think, you know, this evidence did look very vivid and very important and um, it did seem to show quite serious failings. So I think we should be grateful to him for doing it. But we do need to subject ourselves, you know, we do need to subject to the normal critical scrutiny. Yes. And uh, I, I should say that Dominic Roberts has been on the airwaves this morning. He's called uh, that list of charges, uh, quote, frankly, a mischaracterization of the pressures. He also says not enough recognition has been given to how hard the mission was, but he has admitted that lessons can be learned. Um, let's move on to something that's also quite worrying, that the situation uh, surrounding Ukraine. We know over Overnight, Boris Johnson held talks with uh, Biden and also uh, leaders from Germany, France and Italy, trying to put on this united front ahead of uh, Biden's uh, call with Putin a little bit later on. Um, David, this is being described, well, the New York Times characterised it as being, you know, sort of Ukraine's um, independence as a free nation is potentially hanging the balance with this phone call. Uh, I find it hard to believe um, that even Vladimir Putin is going to uh, invade Ukraine. I mean, I really do. It's such an, uh, an incredible... I mean, of course, people will say, well, he seized Crimea, annexed it, and so on. Um, but there is, believe it or not, a significant difference between that. I mean, one, you can say one could lead to the other, but there is a significant difference uh, between them. Uh, Ukraine is an active ally of ours. It might not be in NATO. We act as guarantors of its territorial integrity. Um, although we are not going to go to war with Putin, uh, act of proper you know, war with Putin about Ukraine, because that is not, um, although, you know, if the situation escalated, and this is one of the things that Putin has to bear in mind, we could find ourselves in a very, very serious and potentially armed situation um, uh, down the road, which is one of the reasons why I think he, 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 he won't do that. But everything short of actually getting troops involved would be done to help protect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And that is the only message that Western governments can afford to put out. Mm. Uh, in other words, you have to put out the strongest message you possibly can. Don't go down this path. You will regret it. Um, uh, and if Putin does invade Ukraine, we will all regret it, but he will regret it, and the Russians will regret it more than anybody else. And Danny, what of the US position on this? Because, of course, um, the US side was at pains in the briefings last night to say militaristic uh, options are, are not firmly not on the table with this. They were stressing, you know, Iranian-style sanctions on banks and, and pulling Russia out of the international financial settlement systems and things like that. But as uh, as David was referring to there, boots on the ground was not even being entertained. No, I, I, you know, I wish I could be as confident as you are, David, that, that he won't invade, because I think that there are quite a lot of indications that he will. Um, he definitely does consider Ukraine to be part of Russia, um, and not an independent nation. He's given long, quite tedious lectures going back to the 1300s and the 1100s. And funny enough, when this, just as this story is happening, I'm writing my the, the book about my parents, and I was just literally just writing about the Russian invasion of Lvov in 1939. And um, 
you know, Russia did that because it was going to defend its uh, fellow citizens in Western Ukraine. That was the excuse they gave. And um, they definitely do think it's sort of not just part of their sphere of interest, but part of their country. And so I think that Putin could persuade himself he wasn't really invading, that he was simply, you know, um, defending the people of Ukraine against their government or such some such formulation. Um, it's very serious. And I'm not sure... I think it's enough to say that we're going to impose sanctions because I think any sign of weakness will encourage him in this act. That having been said, it's unbelievably difficult to know what to do because, you know, it probably is unrealistic to fight a war over it. But on the other hand, it may be that if we're not willing to do that, he's willing to take over, you know, a country that deserves you know the support of western democracies to be uh, an independent and free nation so I, I you know i'm not saying i've got an answer to that question but i'm really worried about it no i think you're right i think you're right to worry i just i just had this uh, even putin will be aware that the majority of ukrainians don't want a russian takeover of ukraine that gives him a very significant problem in and of itself in other words there would be and will be a long-term significant resistance um, which would act as a very big drain on russia at a time when it can't really afford uh, such a thing well it never can afford such a thing really um, so my optimism is not based on a kind of you know belief that vladimir putin is um uh, is a nice guy or doesn't have um uh, or, or or has a neutral attitude towards ukraine's sovereignty he doesn't uh, but on a much more kind of pragmatic basis that the that the situation that he would then create for himself would actually be not only intolerable but incredibly risky mm. i mean just incredibly risky long term it destabilizes the whole of Eastern Europe and Russia's uh, border neighbours and so on, and creates all kinds of potential, which we can't, which we hardly even speculate about now. But frankly, if you're Finland, if you're Norway, if you're any one of these countries, the Baltic countries, Georgia, um, right the way down to Moldova, etc., and made it, then in that case, you are in a state effectively of armed alarm. Uh, that can't be good. Let's move on to uh, less intractable matters. Omicron and how to defend ourselves against it. Um, of course, lots of worry, even just on this programme earlier on, about uh, its spread and what we're learning about it. Um, Rob, on, on the airways this morning, was saying uh, we're, not, we're not at plan B yet. Uh, we're not thinking about that. Danny, is he right? Um, well, you, no, he's not right not to think about it. Yeah. But I believe it's... Basically, we don't know whether or not this is going to prove... Um, sufficiently milder. It looks like it's almost certainly not going to be less mild, but is it going to be milder or sufficiently milder to mean that the rapid rise in cases isn't going to, by, when combined with the infection and hospitalisation rate, going to lead to an overwhelming of hospitals? We just don't know that. The moment we know that, we're going to have to move in one direction or another. There's no point pretending to ourselves that it's not a problem if it's a problem. Um, we just don't know it yet. And I think it's right to it's very difficult if you the problem is if you if you move now um that has real consequences people shouldn't just sort of say blithely you'd you'd bankrupt businesses you would you know spoil a lot of people's 
um, education that it has real impact. So I think that we're probably striking the right balance, mm. but we certainly ought to be we ought to be planning for a situation in which this could do what we've tried to avoid the whole time, which is lead to very large numbers of hospitalizations that the system can't cope with. I'm going to hope that that's not the case. And there's a very, you know, it's sort of a, almost like a coin flip as to whether it is or isn't. But David, do you think government is is too fearful of um, some of those measures which have become political hot potatoes, thinking about things like uh, vaccine passports and uh, widespread uh, mask mandates. Lots of other countries are doing it. I've just come back from the US where you couldn't even go into a restaurant and sit down or anywhere where you just sort of sit for a moment and have a coffee without flashing your vaccine passport or a negative test uh, from the day before. Um, is government just too fearful of those things because of the sort of toxic nature around the debate of it? I think we've been a bit slow on those things. In other words, the things that don't cause a dramatic uh, economic or any significant economic collapse, but which people just don't like very much. Um, uh, I think we have been a bit uh, a bit slow on these things. I mean, it was what was uh, marked was, if you use the London tube as, uh, as I do, was up until the moment when the government remandated masks on public transport, although they were already mandated in London, you got down to about 60-40 usage, and it went up to about 99% the very next day, mm. which, is a better, which is a better outcome. Well, you've got to ask yourself why you ever let it go in that case until, until, until we were more through it. And I think there are a number of uh, uh, things like this. I, I would like to have seen venues... Uh, much more closely asking to see proof of vaccination status and so on when letting people in than they actually have been. They've been telling people we will examine uh, status, but they never do. And everybody knows they don't, so they don't take any notice. So, so just kind of get used to some of these things. But I have to say, it's not absolutely clear to me what the vast difference is between the pattern of infection hospitalisation is between countries who have done that and the countries that haven't yeah. done that. I mean, there may be some, but it's not clear to me that it's absolutely huge. So I would have just done it in order to get people used to the fact that uh, and, and, feeling, and feeling that we are still in something rather than we had somehow magically escaped it which uh, Omicron comes along and tells us we haven't. Mm. Can I finally ask you both about Panto? Um, we're talking about Panto. No, 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 no you oh, can't, OK, you well, can't. good to talk to you no. both. Thanks so much. No, <laughs> cause, of course we need to talk about Panto. So we're doing, uh, that's our big thing at 11, because Panto is, is obviously back. It sort of spluttered at a start last year and then was uh, shut down by the tiering system across the country. Um, are either of you fans? Danny, are you a Panto fan? <laughs> As you can imagine, I'm never, I'm never off the panel. Look, I Basically, if you've got three children, and my, and my oldest one's now 21, but if you've been through the period of having three young children, anything that represents a show uh, that uh, is on in the theatre, anything is always good. So I've become fans of any of those things, and they are incredibly professional. But do I enjoy them myself? I, uh, no. I'm a bit like the, the combination of Boris Johnson and, uh, and Keir Starmer in the sense that I've sort of been to Peppa Pig World, if you see what I mean, but I didn't enjoy it. President so not involved. The, uh, the, uh, that's using an analogy, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, I, I basically um, accept that uh, pantos are very good for some people, and I take my children, I've taken my children to them, but I don't wildly enjoy them. And David, are you at the other end of the spectrum? Are you already shimming into your dame dress well, and, and got, spreading I've, on a load of uh, red lippy? I've got a question for both you and Danny. Where's the Albanian flag? Where's well, the Albanian flag? It's yeah, on your look at my sofa. 
No, it's behind me. Honestly. Uh, so- oh. <laughs> God almighty. <laughs> Albanian flag panto jokes. Let's strike oh, no. them off the script for next year's panto. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, you know. I try my best, honestly. I mean, you know, because I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, you don't know this, but I'm, ho- I'm almost certain to be, I very much hope to be a grandfather for the first time at the uh, at the end of February. And oh. um, one of the things I am pretty much looking forward to is getting back into doing those kinds of things that small kids like while having an excuse to do them myself. And Panto would certainly be one of them. That was Danny Finkelstein and David Ronovich. Up next, Panto. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Luke Jones, not Matt Chorley. Time for this. Panto is back. After a dreadful stop-start last year, Panto is already underway in many parts of the country. In a moment, we will hear from directors and writers. First, super producer Michael Harrison. If you have a Panto in town, chances are he's behind it. I went along to rehearsals for one of his many, many openings. So this is where we rehearse most of our pantomimes. In here we have the wardrobe skips, which have just arrived today. So Wardrobe skips? And yeah. just massive boxes They're full of sequins. Massive boxes full of all the costumes that were packed at our stores in Scarborough. Um, plenty sparkle, because Goldilocks is set in a circus. One, then we swing the leg this, is their, this is their first day, and they're working on so many big numbers in this show. We have ten dancers here in Birmingham. So we, uh, we, we travel the world with the circus. Um, you have to learn to speak... Lots of different languages, so you've got to say hello and welcome in so many different languages. Let me tell you. In Great Britain we say hello and welcome, good evening, how do you do? The French is more seductive with bonjour, bienvenue. The German is hello and welcome, guten tag, Wiedersehen. And in Dutch, hello and welcome, which is pretty much the same. The Spanish way is good, they say hola, bienvenidos, which comes in very handy if you're ever in Torremolinos. Now the Russian way is hard to say and tricky to rehearse. It sounds just like a record when you play it in reverse. See what I mean? Ciao e benvenuto, that's the Italian way to greet. And in Romania they say buda, burushabun venit. The Poles say chichavitai, the Finns say telepatula. In Hawaii it's aloha and they say it with a hula. 
If you ever go to China for hello, you say ni hao in Japanese, konnichiwa, and say it with a bow. But here we are in Birmingham, it's as clear as black and white. So let's just keep it short and sweet and simply say, all right. Yeah, so I think we can strip it right, yep. right back. How much panto in a normal year are you responsible for? Well, we produce 29 pantomimes each year at most of the major theatres in England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. So we've got pantomimes in Edinburgh, two in Glasgow, up in Aberdeen, pantomimes in Cardiff, uh, pantomimes in in Belfast at the Grand Opera House there, and the London Palladium, and, and most of the major number one touring houses. So tell me about last year, first of all, before we get on to this year. Um, some pantos did open very, very briefly, some of them. Um how was it across all your, your many different productions? Well, we were very clear that you know, I'd said to government that if we didn't know by the beginning of August how the land would lie for Christmas, the pantomimes wouldn't be going ahead as we knew them. And they were cancelled. They were all actually not cancelled. They were rescheduled and moved to this year. Mm. And then by the kind of end of August, beginning of September, with the support of the National Lottery, we found a way to produce 10 or 12 smaller shows much smaller in scale um, 75 minutes long no interval because at the time there was concern about audiences mingling in foyers and things Um, so we set about creating these smaller productions unfortunately apart from one they were all closed down by the tiering system. So we got six performances at the Palladium that were closed. Many didn't open at all. Some got to a dress rehearsal and didn't open. And Plymouth got to three performances before the end. So it was a real disaster for everybody, for the theatres, for the actors, for all the people that were relying on that work. But the variant was ravaging through and um, and, and we had to close. And what was it like for you? That must have been a stressful time it was very stressful i mean it was heartbreaking actually because we'd fought all year to try and do something and the palladium was interesting because we opened on a friday to princess kate prince william and the children the first time that they'd been out as a family together and we had this joyous performance for them at four o'clock on a friday by four o'clock on the sunday i'd had a tip off that we, we were going to be closed and I was literally sobbing in Julian Clary's dressing room. Not because, you know, it, okay, it was a show and it had to close and many, many businesses had closed, but it was that we thought we were so close. We thought we were going to deliver some kind of entertainment for people. And people were enjoying it. Even though it was a more stripped-back affair to what we're used to, people were cheering, standing, laughing. We were limited to only a 1,000 people in the auditorium, and they all wore masks. Mm. Nevertheless, they all had a great time. Before we get on to what actually then is afoot uh, this year, touch words, if everything continues as it does, um, just explain for, for anyone who might be a bit sniffy about Panto why it is why it is, it's so important as a part of our national entertainment, but also it, it, economically in all those places that you mention, it's big business, isn't it? Economically, it's hugely important for the theatres. It's hugely important for theatres to remain open the rest of the year by how successful their pantomime is. You know, I often say for theatres that don't get subsidy, pantomime is the subsidy. Pantomime is the thing that maybe allows theatre managers to programme certain things that maybe don't attract huge audiences, but nevertheless should be seen. And theatres can't survive without their Christmas show. It is one of the biggest earners in the entire year. 
Um, and I think it's important from, you know, it's very, very British. There's, there's, you can't really see pantomime around the world. They have been doing pantomime in South Africa. They've done pantomime in Canada. It ran for a little while in Australia. But it's pockets. You know, it's not, it's not an American thing. It's not, you don't go to every North American city and see a pantomime. But without exception, every town, every city here in the UK has a pantomime, sometimes more than one. Mm. And I think, you know, we, we like entertainment. We like escapism. And it's something that you can genuinely do as a family. Mm. Multi-generations can come to a pantomime and enjoy the shows on many, many different levels. And there's not that much that you can do anymore like that, you know, sitting down in front of the TV, maybe watching something like a Strictly, but going out of the house as a family for live entertainment, it's 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 completely unique. Was Canadian panto as dull as it sounds? Canadian, I never saw a Canadian pantomime, but I've produced a lot of shows in in Canada. Um, in in the early days. Um, one of the biggest pantomime stars in Canada was Lionel Blair. Really? Lionel used to go over and do pantomime, and they would take a British production, maybe with a few Canadian stars. Um, but, but of late, it's been Canadians that have been doing it in Toronto. And I believe it's very, very successful, but it's only one in Toronto. It's not as if it's across the rest no. of the country. Well, it is across the rest of the country here, and lots of people, I'm sure, will have things booked and, and be looking forward to it. Um First of all, what's afoot for you? Is everything back to quote-unquote normal in terms of scale and dates and where you are and the rest? In the main, yes. I mean, a few theatres have cut their runs a little bit shorter just because we're not sure that schools will come out in the sheer volumes that they would do. So, you know, maybe a five-week run turned into a four-week run. There's no children in the shows this year because we had to make the decision about children in the summer. And it was just at the time that there was a lot of concern about schools and, you know, what children might be carrying in terms of the virus. So we made the call not to have the traditional babes. Um, and everywhere is having the shows that they would have had. At the Palladium, we've chosen to bring back Pantoland, the show I mentioned that was cut short, because so many people enjoyed it and so many people didn't get the chance to see it. And that is a, that's not a pantomime. Um, it's, a, it's a variety show. It's a celebration of the pantomimes that we've done at the Palladium. It's like the greatest hits of pantomime with Julian Clary, Donny Osmond, Nigel Havers, Gary Wilmot, Paul Zerden and many others all within that, that mix. Mm. But other than that, it's kind of business as usual. Mm. Nobody will see any difference to scenery, costumes, a number of performers, orchestra sizes are the same because it's kind of our responsibility as pantomime producers to help the, the, the industry, the theatre industry, rehabilitate itself. It's another Christmas, it's another panto season, we've another festive variant troubling people and concerning policymakers. How worried are you about what might happen in terms of the rules and what restrictions what restrictions might be put on you, but also what it might do to, to punters and their willingness to, to leave the house and go and stand in a room with thousands of other people? I think we all, all pantomime producers, not just myself, you know, live in fear. I think we all thought that this winter there would be some kind of trouble be it an increase in the flu, um, coughs and colds that we didn't seem to have last year may have came back with a vengeance. So we're kind of watching the news very closely and every time there's a press conference, you can see that sometimes in the box office it makes people a little bit nervous. I have to say, I think in the main, ticket sales are very, very strong, but I wouldn't blame audiences not having the confidence to book 
whilst they think things might be closed down. Mm. Um, but we have to battle on. So many of the shows are in rehearsal. Many of them are open and they're being performed now. So we kind of take every day as it comes. But it's, it's terrifying. And not just for pantomime, but for all live theatre that is now up and running. The West End, of course, is up and running. There are many big musicals around the country and playing in the theatres that don't have pantomimes. So I do think we're kind of walking on that dodgy wire again. Um, and we've just got to wait and see. We've just got to wait and see what happens. I hope we won't be closed down. I hope that a combination of vaccination passports, mandatory mask wearing, and the fact that this variant hopefully isn't as strong as, as first thought um, will mean that we can stay open. Theatres won't be able to function if there's social distancing. That's an absolute fact. If social distancing was in place or oh, there was a cap on capacity, theatres would close, and I fear this time some would close forever. But, but thinking about the perspective from your industry, are you scratching your head as to why vaccine passports aren't already in play? Is that something you'd like to see the government just get ahead of and say, just bring that in? Well, they did on Broadway. Broadway, very, very quickly, from the beginning, it was mandatory mask wearing and you had to have a passport. Um, some theatres have done that. Some theatres have been very hard on masks and some theatres have been very strict on having a COVID passport. Um, some find it very hard to enforce. I actually saw one musical which will remain nameless a couple of weeks ago when the audience were particularly badly behaved and didn't want to wear masks and it's very hard for ushers you know who are used to tearing a ticket and selling an ice cream mm. to reinforce this kind of thing so it would be better if it was a government policy i think yeah and just finally what, what protections are there for you um last year there was no end of of cash being splashed by the culture secretary is that the same this winter round? Are, are there any of those kind of helps in terms of insurance and money and, and the rest of it, or is it just good luck? Uh, it's kind of good luck. I mean, the, in, the insurance scheme didn't do anything for the commercial theatre. It didn't help us at all. It wasn't fit for purpose, really. Um, and, you know, there have been loans. There have been grants. The pantomime business, our pantomime business, didn't receive uh, any either of those. Um, so we're reliant upon the shows happening. We're really reliant upon bringing people back to work, the shows being on, selling tickets and not being closed down. Just very finally, what's your, what's your, what's your most favourite filthiest panto gag? Well, I work with Julian Clary every year. So my, uh, my panto, the Palladium, is quite well known for its innuendo. So I don't have one uh, filthy panto gag. We have hundreds of them. And um, my favourite moment, I don't think that I could maybe give a, a, a rude gag on the radio, but I could tell you... I'll merrily bleep it, just for my own pleasure. <laughs> I will tell you this. I will tell you that when we did Pantomime with Dawn French, um, Julian made some kind of comment to Dawn on stage, and Dawn said, oh, I've heard about this. I've heard about you and your, your innuendo. These people haven't paid £100 a ticket to listen to your filth. And in unison, at every performance, 2,000 people went, oh, yes, we have. So I think that sums it up nicely. Producer Michael Harrison, super panto producer. Uh, that Birmingham Hippodrome panto is underway quite shortly, and the one he mentioned at the Palladium is open now with uh, Julian Clary et al. Um, Kathleen on Twitter at Times Radio says, Salisbury Playhouse for pantomime for me this year. It's scale-down show, but next year I hope to go to Cinderella with my granddaughter, who loves it. I love the saucy jokes. My granddaughter takes them differently, which, um, good. She shouldn't be understanding filth, maybe. And John on text says, Panto is about as funny as Benny Hill, and it seems to be about as sacred as the NHS. 
NHS. I don't understand the panto obsession at all. Uh, let's welcome along Vicky Stone, writer of the Lyric Hammersmith's uh, Aladdin in London, and Lisa Sperling, the artistic director of Theatre 503, which is on putting on a Snow White. Welcome both. Hello, hi. Thank you hi. so much for joining us. Um, Vicky, I'll start with you, first of all. Um, is everything back to normal? Yeah, everything is back to normal. I think that lots of people in the sector had that sense of relief when the shows have opened. Our, our, we had our press night last Saturday, so we've already done a week of performances. And How was that? How's that it go? Did. Was it received well? Yeah, it was received really, really well. And I think the problem is now is with everyone sort of holding their breath that all of a sudden things aren't going to change because, mm. as um, as Michael mentioned in, in his interview, is that pantos really do bring in money to support the entire building. There's so much of the theatre's ecosystem that is reliant on panto going ahead. And at the moment, it's the houses are full, we're selling out, it's brilliant, it's great to see those audiences back in and laughing and... You know, and so I think everyone's just really hoping that we can get to our, our run is until the second of Jan, and everyone's just hoping that we can get there. Lisa, what about you? Uh, we haven't opened yet, so we're still holding our breath um, in the sense of going. Firstly, can you get it over the line in terms of rehearsals, and then, but the buzz in terms of audiences want to come and see it. We have, uh, we're above the Latchmere pub in Battersea, and so that kind of local audiences. It's a panto set in nine elms very nearby and it's just kind of you can feel the the joy and the audience Mm. is desperately wanting to come and talking to us about it and we're doing a live stream to Wandsworth schools and that's you know that's already got three thousand children booked in and suddenly you're going okay hang on there's a there's a real hunger for it but i'm as of yet i'm not quite as confident as vicky because we haven't we haven't as i call it got it over the line yet and open um i should say it sounds like one of you is in a snowstorm i'm not quite sure which of you um oh that noise has gone. Anyway, we'll press on. Um, Vicky, can you just explain for us, well, why are you involved in Panto and uh, and why you think it's so important, aside from the money, which Michael sort of talked through quite a bit? Well, I've performed in a lot of Pantos. This is my first Panto that I've written, mm-hmm. and it's been excellent to write it because I've I've um, I've been uh, I've been the baddie quite a lot. That's my favourite role to play. I like playing the male baddie roles. I've done Abanaza a few times and Flesh Creep a few times, which is the baddie in Aladdin and the baddie in Jack and the Beanstalk. And I, I love pantomime. I, I don't think there are many art forms that really truly bring in such a wide audience as Panto does. It really does bring everyone and anyone into the theatre, and I think it's a real gift for me as a writer now to be able to um to be able to write something that you know that appeals to so many people i think that um panto really for me is that sweet spot between theater and stand-up there's it's kind of it's panto is something that's rehearsed within an inch of its life but it's also Mm. alive it can also change every single day and i absolutely love that because with a lot of theater it, it does that doesn't really happen um and so i think panto is really unique in that aspect and lisa why are you involved why is this something that you want to do it's the moment for so this five or three is a new writing theatre we launch mm. brand new playwrights and one of the things that playwrights um can and must do is write as vicky just articulated write comedy and things for family and stuff that stops anything being intimidating and is silly and irreverent and stupid and fun and sort of surprising and gas making and and i think for me we've done a panto every year and it just it's, it is the best time of the year because it's the moment when audiences come in, they're throwing things at the stage, they're getting involved, they're talking back, they're rewriting the script practically on stage with the actors as, as things 
go wrong and, and go right. And it just, for me, you know, Panto is my, as, as with so many people, it's the first moment where I went into a theatre. And I just think once you've done that storytelling, it continues on and on and on. So it's just, yeah, it's it's a no-brainer. Yeah. When the audience meet the stage, they love it and come back again and again. And you can sense, both of you, when when you talk to people, punters, even as we're on this very radio station earlier, a certain sniffiness about pantos. Um, is that present at all in the industry? Are there writers or actors or people who think, well, I do this and I'm not actually getting involved with panto? Vicky, have you ever come across that? Yeah, definitely. There's a there's a big snobbery um, around it. And I think that it, it requires an awful lot of skill to write a good panto and, and to bring together a good panto. It's you, you've got you've got you, you need uh, you need um, people that are good at sound that are good at you know musical theatre. You need you need lighting directors and you need the sort of you need the type of um, type of staff on your show that would be responsible for the technical aspects of a West End musical, mm. but you haven't got as much time to make it. And I think that people look down on it, that it's, you know, it's not, it's not proper. For instance, lots of the mainstream theatre awards never include pantomime. It's like, it's something that we just forget about, but actually it supports, as I said before, it supports loads of other forms of theatre. And I think there is a huge snobbery within the industry that doesn't really recognise it as something that's proper. And if you do it well, it really is proper. Mm. And is the problem, Lisa, that there is there is some sort of, how do I phrase this, that there are some old, stale, slightly rubbish pantos that sort of do the rounds? Is that fair to say, that sort of drag it down? I don't know. I think it, it's such a gesture of goodwill. I think, yeah, there's more traditional ones. I think it's really exciting to see, uh, new, obviously I'd say this, but new writing meet mm-hmm. pantomime so that it's not the same script each year and that people are responding and you know the, the gags are topical and I think something that was you articulated with uh, Michael who's speaking to before this idea of I think it's the the ultimate skill he has and Lucy oh, the writer of our pantomime has that you can write a pantomime member of the audience set of gags is very specifically as you talked that you know filthy or smutty or adult which the, the younger audience members don't understand at all and then you've got a set of sort of physical gags or very kind of specifically for children the adults kind of do the kind of oh god dad joke and respond to that is that takes such skill and then in terms of you know i you know, we talk about triple threats in musical but in pantomime they've got to they've got to meet the audience head on there it just isn't that illusion of the fourth yeah. walls so they the confidence that panto performers need to go not only am i going to stand on stage and probably sing dance act be a comedian at any point the audience can stand up and say something or say something back to me and I will <laughs> take that and I will roll with it and I'll respond to it and to me yeah it's it's the ultimate and it and but it's also exhausting there's often you know there's often a lot more shows that theatres cram in so there's a real kind of marathon aspect to it you're doing it at the toughest time of the year even before the challenge in terms of health wise in terms of how many shows they do in terms of packing people in so I think you know the the pantomime teams up and down the country deserve our ultimate respect and especially doing it now mm. because i've never known anything like it in terms of what what people are what people are putting into it and and how how you may well feel that we're going to do it anyway but we might not get to actually do the show in the end how do you mean and what is that like a sort of sense that you're all putting all this effort in lisa to do something but it might open for a day might not even open 
to be honest, it's never felt more special because you have to sit in the room and go, well, we'll do it and we'll do it every day and we'll come in and it still might not happen, but mm. we're still going to put as much into it. And then when it does happen, and Five or Three has been back open to the public since September, we the performance because you go, we got to do this and we got to meet an audience and we got to share it. And you can really feel that from the audience. They're coming in and going, this is even more special because it's a collective experience, which they possibly haven't had. So it, it means more than ever. Yeah. And Vicky, how do you how do you keep it new? Um, how do you actually change it while also not ruining the, the, the tradition, which actually is why people are there in the first place for the most part? Well, uh, I um, so I'm Aladdin is the production uh, Zapanto that we're doing at the Lyric Hammersmith, and I first wrote that. I first did my I did my first draft uh, in December 2019 and submitted it January 2020. And obviously, like lots of things have changed, so that that had to be almost completely rewritten. No and jokes about I, Zoom. Yeah, that's completely rewritten. And I um and I did one of the things I decided that is that Aladdin is a very tricky panto because um that there are lots of old traditions um that that lots of the pantos around the country have a lot of sort of cultural appropriation in their costumes and we wanted to avoid that completely. Mm. And so our Aladdin is set in Hammersmith. Um the the royal family have, they have they they have their own briefing room. So we've we've got a kind of our sort of panto take on oh, the no. uh, panto take on the briefing room. Uh, we've got our own podium and our own slogan <laughs> for the podium. So we we we've actually been able to take a lot of the things that have happened to us in the last sort of year or so and and put them put them in on stage yeah. which has been incredibly fun um we've even got uh we've even got a, a henry hoover in, in our set if you remember when they released the um when they released the photographs of the uh, yeah. the new briefing room they accidentally left a hoover in and i just thought well why not just stick a stick a henry hoover <laughs> in the corner of our in the corner of our set so yeah and just finally both of you i wonder how <laughs> i remember this is a this is a uh, mid-morning family show how filthy do you go lisa Filthy in the sense of if you know what it it's double entendre, isn't it? If you yeah. know what it means, then you get it, and if you don't, you don't. Vicky, well, there's actually uh, no filth in ours at all. Um, the stuff that goes over kids' heads is more about lines uh, of, that are political yeah. or about television programs they might not have watched. So actually, um, I'm sorry to disappoint people, but actually, our banter is currently innuendo-free. Henry Hoover, but no knob gags. Yeah, that's it. that's it from us thank you very much for downloading you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you found it might i recommend the times radio app it's a good place to start you can follow me on twitter i'm at luke jones 03 i will be back tomorrow This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.